Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today's episode explores innovation in the community college space, an especially important topic given that enrollment was down nearly 10% this fall. That surprised a lot of experts who were predicting the same kind of counter-cyclical bump that we saw during the Great Recession. Today, EAB's resident community college expert, Dr. Christina Hubbard, is joined by the president and CEO of the League for Innovation in the Community College, Dr. Rufus Glasper. They'll talk about some of the reasons for the enrollment dip, but they'll also cite reasons for optimism that begin with a new presidential administration featuring noted community college professor and advocate, Dr. Jill Biden. Thank you for joining us and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Christina Hubbard and I'm a Senior Director of Strategic Research here. My main areas of focus are academic advising and community colleges, so I am thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Rufus Glasper, President and CEO of the League for Innovation in the Community College. Dr. Glasper, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Christina. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So Dr. Glasper, can you start out by telling us a little bit more about the League for Innovation in the Community College and maybe tell us how, if at all, your journey with Maricopa Community Colleges helped to inform the work that you're doing as president and CEO of the League? The League for Innovation focuses on catalyzing innovation within community colleges. Uh, we've been around approximately 52 years plus. And over that period of time, uh, we were created uh, at a time when community colleges were considered to be a disruptive innovation. And we provide a platform for discussion, for addressing issues of change. Uh, we uh, do not focus on politics or, or uh, political issues. Uh, we, try, we leave that to the American Association of Community Colleges or the Association of Community College Trustees. So we, we try to stay focused. A majority of our, our, of our attendees to our conference are, are faculty members and those who might be at the VP department level, supervisor level and so forth. Uh, we connect and, and have memberships in the CEO's name, uh, but our role is to uh, think about what works and what doesn't work and, and how we can help accelerate change and, and transformative innovation. And I think that's actually a great segue to the, you know, elephant in the room, which is community college enrollment after the fall 2020 term. Um, as I know you're keenly aware, um, we saw enrollment fall off by about 10% in the community college sector um, across the um uh, across the full community college population, we lost over half a million students. Um, and I know that there were many of us, including myself, that predicted that the pandemic and the recession might prompt an increase in community college enrollment, similar to what we've seen in the past. And yet that didn't come to fruition. So I'm curious what you think was one of the drivers behind the declines that we've seen in community college enrollment. Well, I, I will definitely... Um look at the whole notion of the potential decline. You asked about my experience with Maricopa as well. I was at Maricopa for, for 30 years. And during that period of time, I would spend about 17 years on the finance side of the house and 13 years as the, as the, uh, the chancellor for the system. Uh, we, we walked into this, we collectively as educational institutions walked into this pandemic uh, thinking that it was very similar to the 2008 recession. 
And the 2008 recession uh, gave us an opportunity to kind of see how, uh, how community colleges could address a recession and what the impact on our student population might be. And we came out of that recession uh, in the Maricopa system with our highest enrollment ever. Uh, as, as we were looking at, at, at the, the upsurge, uh, we, 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 we went to, in, by 2012-13, coming out of the 2008 recession, we were at 275,000 students. So we, we thought that we, we understood the model. We flipped the model from more full-time to part-time faculty so we could serve more students, but it was at a cost. And that's the cost of, of, of quality. Uh, with this one, uh, we, we thought similar would happen, especially with the pandemic. We felt that, that students were close to the home, uh, that the price point was, 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 was better, uh, and that we, we had this locked. What we didn't think about or predict or had any kind of knowledge was the, the whole impact of the, of the gig economy, uh, those who are in restaurants, uh, the fact that uh, 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 just having childcare is a major issue. When you have multi-family in one single household and you're trying to conduct business uh, in a virtual environment and we knew about the digital divide, but we never realized the impact of, of that most of our students uh, do not have a home computer. Uh, they come to our colleges and, and that's where they spend a lot of their time and they can get the backup support. So as we thought about it, uh, we, we just didn't have any backups. And the lack of digital dexterity across the organization uh, is, was pervasive. It is a lot better now. Uh, but I think that our, our students have been impacted by it and, and our faculty members have been impacted as well. Uh, I believe that once we move out of this, uh, uh, all of our institutions will be focusing on professional development for increased digital dexterity and the, the whole environment around hunger and housing are major impacts as well. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, when we think about the students who attend community colleges, um, so often there's already that precarious balance of, you know, managing their family responsibilities and their professional responsibilities alongside their academic responsibilities. Um, and one of the things that really came to the forefront here in the pandemic is that if you're suddenly having to take on you know, full-time childcare of your kids who are normally going off to school and um, trying to support them with their academic needs. Um, there just wasn't much capacity for a lot of our learners to really thrive within higher education themselves. I think, um, you know, the report that came out um, from the National Student Clearinghouse um, indicated that public two-year uh, institutions lost about 36 and a half percent of their enrollment among students who are over the age of 24. Um, and so again, I, I think that that just reinforces that, that, that concept of um, how challenging it is for some of our students to succeed um, in the best of conditions. And then when you add some of these additional barriers that have been presented in the pandemic, it becomes really difficult. Uh, Christina, if I may, I just wanna bring in one other factor. Uh, the, the National Clearinghouse information shows that the, the number of freshmen dropped um, most dramatically at about 22.7%. Mm -hmm. And, and when, when you look at that impact, when, when we're thinking about our pipeline are from those students who are graduating from, 
from high school and, and coming into our colleges. And when when that line is cut off, then uh, it, it's, it's the bloodline for survival in terms of those who may be matriculating into a two-year degree or onto a four-year degree as well. And, and we're trying to investigate further to see what is happening. And many of our colleges within the league have reported that African-American males are absent. Uh, they just did not show up. So I think that there's a lot of things that's happening within this environment in terms of uh, political polarization, uh, issues of fear, family issues, and just trying to understand uh, in, in a household where first-generation students are, are, are part of our major uh, uh, attendees, and when you have a family that does not have any educational history or the parents uh, have not had access to education or been able to, if you're the first in your family to, to, to have an education, how can you expect to be able to, to help your students at home, uh, train them, help them when, when uh, they don't have the direct access to a teacher or to a faculty member? Exactly, exactly. I think that you're spot on there. Um, and circling back to one of the things that you were just talking about, um, we are all so keenly aware of the unequal impact that the pandemic has had on uh, students and communities of color. Um, can you talk a bit about the work that you're doing at the League um, to help community colleges address the root causes of things like f uh, food or housing insecurity, um, helping to overcome the digital divide that you mentioned before. Um, how can we help our students of color to attend college and ultimately achieve their educational goals? Well, we've made the assumption, and to me it's a flawed assumption, that when you look at the public school system and 80% plus of those students on free and reduced meals, and then when they graduate and they come into our public community colleges, uh, magically, that need goes away and it does not. And uh, the work that Sarah Goldrick Rabb has been doing over the past few years, uh, where she has now been connecting with community colleges as well as four-year institutions are indicating uh, the, the growing need for awareness of hunger issues and housing issues within our student population. Uh, in 2019, we were successful at the League for Innovation in uh, working with Walmart to promote an opportunity to look at rural community colleges. So they asked us if we would, would do a study uh, and pick two rural colleges that were rural and distressed. And we're currently now working with two community colleges, uh, one in Texas and one in Kentucky, and, but they wanna focus on hunger. And we were able to do some face-to-face -face and, and start the project and we visited uh, pant uh, food pantries in each of those different communities. And we're now trying to figure out ways to help them find solutions for the students and their families and support the ecosystem. And, and, and we think that that approach will need to be done in a way that they can think faster, quicker, better, and more inclusive as an ecos ecosystem. And quite frankly, what we have found in this last nine months during the pandemic is that we had to move that to a fully online platform because we, we couldn't have access to it. We're now looking at the impact of the student not being able to come on campus to come to the pantry and all, all other kinds of access. So it's, it's, uh, it's an opportunity to think differently how we can support our students and where that assistance will come from.
I, I think that's a great point, Rufus. Um, and shifting gears a little bit, um, I'm kind of curious as we start to look at the new year, you know, with 2021, um, we have the advent of a new presidential administration. Um, it's looking increasingly likely that Congress is going to be um, held by the Democrats. Um, you know, we have the COVID vaccine rollout. Um, you know, there, there's a lot that is happening that is a major change across what we saw in 2020. Um, and I'm curious if you think that's going to have some kind of an influence on community college enrollment um, or whether that might be more dependent on localized factors like COVID caseloads in a given state or the ability of an individual institution to deliver an educational, um, an engaging educational experience online or, you know, hybrid face-to-face, however it might play out in 2021. Um, how do we raise that appeal of community colleges um, to counter the competition that's coming from our four-year institutions? Thank you for that question. I, I think it's right on target. Uh, from a leadership perspective, I would hope that our community colleges and other educational institutions will be looking at it in two phases. And uh, in, in, in terms of the first phase, we need to get past the inauguration and we need to see uh, what may happen from the new administration. And because the new administration had very strong experience with the Obama administration, uh, we, we would like to think that there will be uh, a great reception uh, to community colleges. During the Obama administration, we had our first undersecretary of, of uh, education that was a community college president. And if you look at the funding over the eight year period, it was the highest level of funding that we had ever received in the history of, of funding community colleges. So you, you would like to think that there could be some form of, of uh, continuation of, of the focus on supporting community colleges. But in the interim, we need to figure out uh, by working with our other educational institutions within the environment, uh, where the balance is between national expectations, lo local obligations and, and the whole pandemic. And I think the, the increase in communication that could actually occur from the federal level in terms of some national standards uh, and it's national standards in terms of, of trying to uh, address safety, uh, address potential focus around funding in terms of stimulus dollars, what they can and cannot be used for and when they can be uh, expected to be received and, and how, you can, how you can use it. I think just clarification will help us administer better at the local level. But in, in the short term, I think the decisions will be made more on a local level in terms of what that local board and that local community feel that they can support in terms of safety first for students, uh, trying to continue the education and addressing the issues around funding uh, as, as probably, uh, not an immediate concern, but it is a concern. Many of our institutions have found that not being in session, not having to deal with the, with utility costs and others, that they have saved a number of dollars. Uh, and when you think about the dollars saved on infrastructure, uh, can they be redirected in other ways to support some of the efforts we were talking about earlier in terms of access to technology uh, and so forth? When I brought up fear earlier, and I think administrators now uh, were 
initially concerned about making wrong decisions during a major pandemic. Uh, I see that starting to calm down now because strategic plans are becoming more fluid planning and more individuals are being engaged, not just the C-suite of the organizations, but faculty members and others are understanding uh, the expectations of their role uh, as we move through the pandemic. And I also believe that there is an increased awareness uh, that we did not have before. We thought the pandemic would be over in three to six months, and now it may move to 18 months. So as we're doing that, we're finding that that collective uh, membrane is starting to spread among the conversations with our community colleges, our K-12 and our universities, and students are hearing a more consistent message. The more that we can, can, can ensure that that message is consistent and that we're not appearing to be um, in conflict with, with the institutional sectors of which service our ecosystem, our communities, then I think that we'll, we'll see more confidence in the fact that I feel better sending my students to school if, if they get in contact with others that are within our system. Yeah, I think, I, I think that does make a lot of sense. Um, you had talked about the faculty a little bit there, um, and I just wanted to um, focus on the faculty for a few minutes and the changes that they've faced across the past year. Um, have faculty received the professional development that they need in order to succeed in this incredibly changing and evolving um, environment? Um, in particular, I'm thinking about the fact that um, to your point, you know, many community colleges thought this was just going to be, you know, a, a few month thing. Um, and here we are approaching one year um, and it's likely going to be um, sort of an atypical uh, course delivery method for a while going forward. Um, so I'm kind of curious what might uh, what colleges might do differently to ensure faculty voices are heard as schools start to chart this path forward. When the pandemic started, you are, uh, all of us are aware, uh, uh, in addition to our own communities and in our workforce, I mean, we moved pretty rapidly within a, a three-week period or four-week period to try to move from face-to-face -to, -face to online. And I would say at that particular point in time, the numbers that I heard is that many of our institutions, uh, for the most part, were probably 20 to 30% of prepared virtually. Uh, every faculty member possibly had taught some kind of class online, um, but as a system, uh, it was a total uh, disruptive time because we could not move fast enough. Uh, we, we, we were trying to take face-to-face -face content and, and, and just pro provide it in a, in a virtual environment. Uh, some of it was successful, but many of our students, many of our faculty saying, it was, was not a good experience. Uh, over the summer, there's been a lot of catch up. Professional development was, 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 was growing rather rapidly uh, within the community college space in terms of bringing faculty up to an, an, a certain level. The Centers for Teaching and Learning were, were uh, immediately involved in, in educating faculty and staff. Uh, I think that has, 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 has built the curve up now. So probably 70% uh, have some level of training. But you're also seeing faculty who are saying that it's not working for me. Uh, I'm a face-to-face -face kind of person. And the students are saying it's not working for me because I don't get the same kind of exchange. The, the, work, the faculty load 
because we're in a, a digital environment, uh, in some cases has increased because students have 24 seven access via a computer and they're expecting responses from faculty at times when, when maybe their childcare load has, has declined uh, in the late evenings and they can now reach the faculty member, but the faculty member may not be on time because they've been working all, all during the year. So there are different things that we're trying to work out. I think it's getting better, but faculty members are, are being uh, invited to the table now that some of the, the, uh, the immediacy has, has declined and, 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 and there's some, some sense of, we need to establish a sense of inclusiveness, engagement and respect for the responsibilities that uh, institutions have uh, with their students and their faculty members. And they're, they're being invited to the table. It's not to say that they weren't being invited before, but there was so much urgency that was going on that you couldn't do it at a regular basis. I've talked to CEOs now that say that they have a regular monthly meeting and it includes hundreds, if not thousands of people who can now uh, access via some kind of digital medium and they can reach and have conversations on a, on a more regular basis. It, it's helpful. I think that's a great push. You know, when we think about um, the connectivity, you know, certainly it's a challenge with everybody being remote, but there's also sort of an ease to some of these things. So elective meetings that you might not have participated in before because it would have been across campus requiring an additional 15 minutes to get over there. You get to the meeting, there's all the chit chat, and then there's, you know, you wrap up and it's another 15 minutes back to your office, et cetera. Um, when you can just tune in via Zoom, um, you know, and check in with what's being said by the president of an institution, um, I think that it really does improve that connectivity across the faculty um, with senior administrators and, um, and the like. Um, I think that engagement between students and their faculty members is also really important. Um, I know um, I've mentioned to you before that I'm still an adjunct faculty member today. Um, and I know that even my level of engagement with my students has changed across the pandemic. Um, you know, I'm a little bit more um, um, eager to try to connect with students through some forms of communication that I might not have used in the past. So I have students texting me much more frequently than they used to. I get on the phone if suddenly they disappear from our online classes um, and I haven't seen them in a couple of weeks um, just to check in and see what's going on. Let them know that they can still catch up in my class. Um, you know, because again, the we don't want the effect of the pandemic to hurt the students that we're all here to serve. Um, so it, it, it is a really interesting time for faculty members. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious if you if you have heard anything about sort of the um, mental health of faculty members. You know, if there's this sense that um, of the pressures that are being put upon them throughout the pandemic. Um, has there been any kind of um, focus on that with the CEOs that you've been connecting with? There has not been any direct responses relative to the, the mental health uh, collectively in institutions. There, there are definitely instances where faculty members are responding differently uh, depending on their, on their own health. The pandemic itself has, has profiled us in different categories. Uh, and the different categories in terms of age, in terms of your health, uh, and in terms of your ability to, uh, to engage because if, if you're in an at-risk group and 
I'm, I, I'm a senior administrator. I'm in an at-risk group. So if I'm a senior faculty, and, and you have to remember that majority of our faculty have probably been with their institutions in most cases uh, between 15 to 25 years. And, 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 and so they fall into that category. And when you're now talking about mandatory uh, return to classes, face-to-face, and w w without the, the, the vaccine being in place and with the, the, uh, the case levels spiking, uh, there's a lot of concern and there's a lot of concern about moving into that space and then coming back to your own environment. And, and uh, with, with many of us uh, uh, during the pandemic, uh, my mother-in-law uh, was 95 years old and coming back in this environment uh, was living with us. And these are just times that, that, that our training um, did not prepare us to try to think about how you can impact that. And, and people are making life choices. The life choices are, 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 are family, there's fear, uh, and, and, and their health. Uh, and, and so I, I think this is a good time for us to, to reassess how we can support our faculty and our staff and mental health will be one of those major components that for community colleges, maybe we need to maintain a support from a local agency uh, and, and have that as part of our, our faculty uh, referral uh, so that we can maintain that kind of sense of concern that we are concerned about it, but we need to take care of business as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we have perhaps the most famous um, community college professor um, who will be entering the White House um, alongside her husband, Dr. Jill Biden, um, has been working for community colleges for years now. Um, and I'm wondering if in light of the current political environment, um, you have any thoughts about what might happen with federal funding to expand things like promise programs or to loosen the eligibility um, for Pell Grants and things of that nature in order to make access to higher education more attainable for students? I am, I am extremely pleased that we, we now have a, a, a vocal individual uh, from Dr. Biden and she was vocal. Uh, she had the first community college summit and, and during that particular point, period of time, uh, she put a spotlight on community colleges. Just this past summer, um, Opportunity America produced a report in June that said community colleges were the indispensable institutions. And as we think about that focal point, I, I think that we will get increased interest, college promise programs, but college promise programs for the most part have always been about last dollar in terms of supporting that last dollar needs to come from someone. Uh, and when you look at the funding that has uh, the disinvestment in community colleges and in education in general, that last funding cannot be on the back of students. Uh, and uh, with the neoliberalism uh, thinking across the country, it, no taxes, no property tax increase, uh, no federal increases and so forth. We need to figure out where those dollars are going to come from. And I believe that there's going to be more local investments. There's going to be more uh, donations that will support part of that last dollar. But it also has to come in support of, of the, the return on investment 
that community colleges can provide in terms of the workforce. Uh, we've always been about access. Now there's this major focus around the retention, completion, and jobs. And as we move through this pandemic, with the unemployment rates that are, are happening at this particular point, uh, we're, we're concerned about transfer students being able to complete at a community college and move on to the universities. But we also need to be focused on micro-credentials, micro-pathways, getting people back to jobs, but trying to ensure that there's a connection point to a guided pathway that allows for a student to come in and out of the workplace, uh, be able to take care of their family, be able to upskill, reskill, and, 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 and find a new skill in, in order to, um, to address the new environment. But be, be aware that we need to have badges, stackable credentials that uh, we can use so that they can complete their two-year degree and or transfer to a four-year institution if that is their goal. And in this environment, I think that the history we had with the trade adjustment grant funding uh, in the early uh, 2012s and so forth have provided us with the pathway. We can have a, an, uh, an energy employee coming out of high school who who's a, a, a pole climber in an energy company come in and out of the workplace in eight steps and have a, an associate degree and transfer to a university to, into an engineering program. Those programs existed uh, over the last 10 years. We need to replicate and scale those type of programs and demonstrate that you don't have to sacrifice uh, your family in order to have a two-year or four-year degree, but we need to have companies that are willing to accept this, accrediting agencies and others. But uh, we're excited about uh, Dr. Biden and the focus and we're trying to look at the collectivity around uh, who's going to fund it. It's always going to be a funding issue. You know, I, I, I could talk to you for hours, Rufus. Thank you so much for sharing these incredible insights about what's happening within the community college sector. Um, you know, I think that's about all the time that we have for today's episode, um, but I am really excited about all of the collaboration and um, coordination that we have coming up between the league and EAP across the upcoming year. Um, I know I'll be uh, joining you at your conference in just a couple of months in the first week of March. Um, and then shortly after that, we'll be uh, collaborating on a presidential symposium as well as a series of webinars across the year. So um, stay tuned, looking forward to having those opportunities to engage with the league. Um, and again, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate the work that uh, EAB is providing us in the areas of thought leadership. Uh, as we look at the experiences of four-year institutions, and we relate those to two-year institutions, majority of our students uh, at some point in time uh, say that they have a goal to transfer to four-year institutions. These kind of environments make it somewhat difficult. However, if, if we can keep that particular portion of their dream alive by restructuring the whole notion of stackable credentials, transfer programs, the fluidity of moving from our two-year to four-year and, and help students with their own choices, uh, then I think we can address the issues. And it's going to be an exciting time. It, it'll be a little difficult uh, for a few months, uh, maybe about a year, but uh, uh, we have to keep the, the light in front of us and we need to keep moving forward. And remember that education 
uh, is a critical infrastructure. Thank you for the opportunity today. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for listening. On our next episode, EAB's Caitlin Maloney and Jackson Nell will examine the new federal spending bill, what it means for higher ed, and how this new stimulus package will differ from the CARES Act. Until then, thank you for joining us on Office Hours with EAB.